Instead of turning to Revelation first, I want you to turn to Daniel with me first. Last uh, Sunday evening, we talked from Daniel about the timeline of the tribulation, and I didn't leave myself enough time to really talk in any detail. And I'm afraid I left some people confused, though most of you said you understood what I meant. Um, I hope you did, but I want to make sure that you understand what this passage is saying. You know, we want to understand why we believe there is a seven-year period of tribulation and how this all fits into a timeline. Well, the, the backbone of that is Daniel chapter 9. It's like the spine, your, your human spine, and you know how everything else is sort of wrapped around that spine. That may not be you know, physiologically correct to say that way, but everything else is wrapped around the spine. The, the spine of future events is right here in Daniel 9. And in this particular passage, we, we learn about, you know, the timeline. And everything else gets wrapped around this timeline. Everything else gets fleshed out around this timeline. We've already read two or three times in the Revelation about 1,260 days. Uh, we've read the phrase 42 months. Uh, both of those refer to three and a half years. Uh, months in uh, you know, when they're calculating months in the Bible, they're 30-day months. They're not like ours, 28-some and 31-others. Uh, they're 30-day months. And so 1,260 or 42 months equals three and a half years. So we've already seen some time designations that are given to us, even in the Revelation. But, but if you want the outlay, the backbone, you want the spine of where the, the timeline comes from, it comes from Daniel chapter 9. So let's just talk through this for just a moment, if we can do that. Daniel chapter 9, verse 24. He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. Now, if you have a study Bible, I hear some of you turning your Bible, so you may, maybe I didn't tell you where. Daniel 9, verse 24. 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city. You see the word weeks? If you have a study Bible, it probably has a footnote or it has a little star by it that's telling you that there's, a, there's a, something that you need to look at to make sure you understand. Because the Hebrew word literally means sevens. In other words, what he says here literally is there are 70 sevens. Units of seven. There are 70 units of seven. Now the question then has to be asked, what is he talking about? And obviously in a lot of our translations, they take that units of seven and they turn it into weeks. Because that's how you and I think. We think in units of seven days. Uh, but is that what Daniel means? And the answer to that is, I don't believe so. And most prophecy scholars who are of my persuasion don't believe so either. That this uh, 70 units of seven, the units of seven represents not seven days or seven weeks, uh, it, it or uh, seven days that make a week. It represents years, 70 units of seven years. Now, where does that number come from? That, that number comes from uh, back uh, when the children of Israel for 490 years violated the Sabbath year over that period of time. How many years would that be? In 490 years, the seventh year was supposed to be a Sabbath year. The land was supposed to lay fallow. They weren't supposed to plant it. They weren't supposed to harvest it. They were supposed to let it lay fallow. But for 490 years, they didn't do that. And so God does what? God takes uh, those years, those years of Sabbaths, and he turns them into captivity. So how many years would that be? That would be 
that would be 70 years. So when the children of Israel are carried away uh, by Babylon and, and uh, uh, by Assyria, uh, when they're carried away into captivity, they're going to be there for 70 years. Why 70 years? Because for 490 years, they, uh, they did not observe the Sabbath year. That's that every seventh year, they didn't observe it. And God said, you didn't observe it, so here's your punishment. I'm going to send you away for 70 years. Now you turn that around and you see that what he's talking about here is not 70 uh, sevens, uh, units of seven uh, days. He's talking about 70 units of seven years. Um, we know as well that he's talking about years. If you look back a little earlier in Daniel chapter 1, he's speaking in terms of years uh, until he gets to that phrase, 77s. You notice verse 2, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years, there it is, the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah, so there's the prophecy of Jeremiah he's talking about, which is talking about years, that he would accomplish 70 years in the desolation of Jerusalem. So even earlier in this chapter, uh, we know that uh, he's talking about years. So there's no reason for us to think that when he comes to these units of seven that he's talking about seven-day weeks. But instead, he's talking about units of seven years, 70 units of seven years. We know that as well, not only because of the way the 490 turned into 70 years of captivity that now turns into 490 years till the coming, or 483 years until the coming of Jesus Christ, we, we know that as well because the timeline that we're going to read here in just a moment doesn't fit if you just call them weeks. In other words, if, if we're talking about 490 weeks, excuse me, if we're talking about uh, 70 weeks, that's, four, that's 490 uh, weeks, that's, that's only about nine, nine and a half years, a little short of nine and a half years. And when you begin to look at the events that we're talking about, that we're about to read, they can't fit in that amount of time. So you have uh, the 490 years that turns into 70 and now gets flip-flopped back into 490. Uh, you get earlier in the chapter, he's talking about years, talking from the prophecy of Jeremiah where he's talking about years. And so when he says that 77s, the units of seven are seven years because that's the only means by which the events we're about to read can actually occur. And, and when, you look at the, um, when you look at the calendar, when Artaxerxes in 444 BC issued the decree to let the children of Israel go back and rebuild their city to the time that Jesus is crucified, you have exactly the number of years that are placed here. Do you get what I'm saying? And so you, you see that the timeline works out perfectly. Uh, so this is a vision that God has given to, to Daniel about a period of time that's yet future and what God's going to do that becomes the spine, it becomes the skeleton around which everything else gets wrapped about what's going to happen in the timeline that is going to happen. So if you're talking here about 77s and those units of seven are years, we're talking about 490 years. Now notice what's going to happen. It's, it's, it's 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression. Here's six things that are going to happen. 
to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness. Has he done that? But is he going to do that? To seal up vision and prophecy. In other words, you won't need vision and prophecy anymore in the fashion that Daniel's receiving it. And to anoint the most holy. You know who the most holy is? So there's six things that are going to result after these 490 years. So he goes on here. Now notice. Know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command. That's the command of Artaxerxes, 444 B.C., to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks, that's seven units of seven, and 62 weeks, 62 units of seven. Now, why are there 49 years and then a break, and it says 434 years? The answer to that is not as easy. We're not specifically told why he breaks it into two specific uh, categories. Most of the scholars that I read suggest that it took 49 years from the time that they went back to rebuild Jerusalem. Only took them 52 days to build a wall. But, But they say that it took longer than that, as much as 49 years to rebuild the city and get everything back into place. Think think back in World War II when they dropped the atomic bomb uh, in Japan. Um, It took years for them to rebuild and to reestablish and and to to re-strengthen themselves, right? It doesn't just happen overnight. It didn't happen in 52 days. It takes years for that to occur. And that's what the estimation is, that the, the reason why these two figures are divided like this, 483 years are divided into two separate figures, 49 and 434, is because it took them 49 years from the time they went back and started the rebuilding to they really got the city cleaned out and they got the city rebuilt. It took 49 years. It says, to restore Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince. There shall be seven weeks, that's 49 years, and 62 weeks, that's 434. So 480, uh, 483 years, right? 483 years until Messiah comes. That takes us all the way to the crucifixion of Jesus. By, by the way, if you like numbers like this, my mind does not work in numbers. My mind works in pictures. How many of you, your mind works in pictures? And how many of you are sick and your mind works? No, 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 no. no. Uh, My mind doesn't work in numbers very well. But there's an incredible book called The Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ by Dr. Harold Honer. Dr. Harold Honer was a long time, long time professor at Dallas Theological Seminary. Uh, his expertise is in the book of, well, his expertise is anywhere in the Bible, but where he spent most of his life was in the book of, of, of Ephesians. If you can get his commentary, it's about this big. I have it in my library. If you, can, if you can get his commentary on the book of Ephesians, you have a masterpiece. Uh, and it's understandable even for the layman, even though he goes into great detail. He was a brilliant man. He wrote a lot of things. That wasn't the only thing that he wrote. But he wrote this book, Chronological Aspects of the Life of Christ. You say, well, why would the life of Christ include this? Because the life of Christ involves his second coming. And he goes back through the numbers. He actually gives pictures that go with the numbers. Thank you, Dr. Honer. Thank you. 
Dr. Honer. You don't want to hug him if he was in what he's already in heaven, but I want to hug him. Thank you for the pictures. Um, he gives pictures, the chronological aspects of the life of Christ, Dr. Harold Honer. He gives pictures of these, but you got 483 years until the crucifixion of Jesus from the time that uh, the children of Israel went back to start the rebuilding of the city until Jesus is crucified. And notice it again, verse 25, know therefore and understand that from the going forth of the command to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there shall be 70 weeks and 62 weeks. The street shall be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Did they rebuild Jerusalem? When they went back, they absolutely did. They rebuilt the temple first, then they rebuilt the wall, and then they rebuilt the city. Reestablished worship, and they, they, got, they got Jerusalem running again. But that still leaves us with one unit of seven missing, right? Got 483 years, so we're still missing seven, seven years. Are you all with me? Whew, I'm working awful hard up here. 483 years means we're missing a, a, we're missing a seven-year a unit of seven. We're missing a seven-year period. Well, guess where that goes? He goes on here, verse 26. And after 62 weeks, Messiah shall be cut off, but not for himself. He's not dying for himself. He's dying for whom? For you and for me. And the people, notice who it is, the people, not the prince, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Who did that? Titus did that. What year did he do that? AD 70. Was he the Antichrist? No, he wasn't. He wasn't the prince. He was the people of the prince. They came and they destroyed what had been rebuilt. Shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. The end of it shall be with a flood until the end of the war. Desolations are determined. In other words, the city just lays, uh, the, the city lays destroyed. Now think about the Temple Mount. Can they build on the Temple Mount? If you go to the Temple Mount, do you see a nice, beautiful uh, temple, all the gorgeous uh, furniture that goes inside the temple? No, you don't see any of that. None of that's there. He goes on, verse 27. Then he, that's the prince. Remember the people are the ones that destroyed the city in AD 70? Then he, the prince, shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. There's our other unit of seven. And who is he? He's the Antichrist. And what's, what happens at the beginning of the tribulation period? We know from other texts that he signs an agreement with Israel that will protect them and allow them to rebuild their temple. And he's there. He, he allows it for, for seven, a unit of seven, a seven-year period. But now notice, in the middle of the week, in the middle of that seven years, how many days? 1,260. How many months? 42 months. How long is that? Three and a half years. In the middle of the, of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolate. So what does he do? We read about this, not last Sunday, I don't believe that. Matter of fact, I know it wasn't last Sunday, or last uh, Sunday evening. I think it was two weeks ago. Uh, what does he do? He takes uh, a, uh, an image of himself that uh, Satan is able to make even move and speak. He puts it in the, he puts it in the temple. Remember, we read about it in, in Matthew 24. Called the abomination of desolation, and he makes everybody worship. He makes everybody worship him. 
Everybody has to turn to worship him. Now, what I want you to see is the, the backbone of the timeline, the spine, the, the skeleton of the, of, the, of the future from Daniel's perspective is laid out for us here in Daniel chapter 9. And this is where we get the timeline. So between the cutting off of the Messiah and then AD 7 when the walls were destroyed until this covenant is signed and this last unit of seven takes place, we're living in that period. Are you with me? We're living in that period. If you were a prophet, prophecy, you know, prophets could see mountaintops. And the prophets could see this first mountain right here. And it's, it's right here, this height. It's, you know, my, my chin height. And they could see Jesus is coming the first time. They could see that. There's another mountain that they could see off in the distance. It's higher. It's way up here. This one's down here. This one's way up here. And here they see Jesus coming a second time. But what they couldn't see was the valley that goes between those two mountains. God didn't reveal that to them until we got to the New Testament. And between those two mountains, his first coming and his second coming is the church age, is the day of grace that we live in when both Jew and Gentile are saved by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, by the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we're all made to be a part of one body, where the Gentiles in Romans 9, 10, and 11 are grafted into. Do you, you get that? And that's the day we're living in. But there's been 69 weeks that have already occurred. There's a break, this valley between the two mountain peaks but there's coming a day when the covenant will be signed with the Antichrist and Israel, and that last unit of seven will take place. And that's what we're reading about in Revelation chapters uh, 6 uh, to about chapter 19. We're reading about that last unit of seven. And what happens in that last unit of seven? I mean, besides the peace treaty, I mean, there's all kind of cataclysmic things happening in the heavens. The gospel of the kingdom is being preached. Uh, 144,000 are sealed and they're witnesses. They're two witnesses that in the middle of the tribulation get killed and they are raised from the dead. Um, the Antichrist comes to power. He's riding on this European Union and he's using their power and authority. But ultimately, he takes over that power and authority solely for himself. He establishes himself as God, and he says to everybody, if you don't take the mark of the beast, you can't buy or sell. And uh, he requires people to worship him and to worship that, uh, that idol that's in the temple. Are y'all, is everybody with me? Y'all are looking not like a bull at a new fence. Don't charge me. Okay? Just don't come charging at me. All of these things are what we're reading about. So go with me back to Revelation. And in chapter 14 of the Revelation, we pick up in this tribulation period, and actually we're somewhere near the middle of the tribulation, and in chapter 14, John, the Lord through John, is going to give us a, a picture of what's coming, specifically of what's coming at the end. You notice that we don't get to the last seven judgments. Uh, uh, until we get to chapter 17. See it in verse 1? Uh, excuse me, chapter 16, verse 1. Then I, I'm looking down and it's not reading like it's supposed to. 
That's because I'm in the wrong chapter. Chapter 16, verse 1, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels, Go pour out the bowls of the wrath of God on the earth. You see that? You remember there was uh, seven seal judgments, and then there were seven trumpet judgments that brought us up to the middle, and we were introduced to these different characters that are players during the tribulation period. We were told about the abomination of desolation. We were told about the mark of the beast. Now he's going to, from this, this, this vantage point, look forward, and he's going to give you a forward view of what's coming. And then when you get over to chapter 16, then the chronology starts moving again. So follow with me, if you will, chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, let's just stop there for a moment. The lamb standing on Mount Zion. The big debate is, where is Mount Zion? It can be heaven. Heaven sometimes is referred to in that kind of a fashion. Or it can be on earth, meaning Jerusalem, because that's the way Jerusalem is sometimes referred to. In my estimation, and I don't have time to give you the opposite point of view, in my estimation, we're talking about an earthly scene. And the reason for that is at least threefold. Number one, because in order for this to be a heavenly scene, the 144,000 would have had to be martyred or raptured. And in the, in, in the, the book of Revelation says nothing about that. You remember, they got the mark so that they couldn't be hurt. So that they couldn't be hurt and they couldn't be harmed. And we don't read anything about God coming and snatching them out of the earth. Secondly, if the 144,000 had been martyred, it would mean that the divine seal of protection given to them as Revelation 7 was insufficient for the whole tribulation period. He didn't ever say that. He indicated that it was a permanent sign that they would be protected. And third, in the next verse, verse 2 that we're going to read in just a moment, there seems to be a change of direction because John hears a voice where? From heaven. So it seems as if he's looking at the earth He's seeing the lamb at Mount Zion with 144,000, and then the voice will speak to him, and he'll turn, and he'll think about heaven. Do you get my point? So, so it seems to me, when I read this, that the lamb standing on the mountain and with him the 144,000 that have the Father's name written on their foreheads, that, he, that he's looking at a, an earthly scene. He's seeing into the future. He's seeing toward the end of the tribulation, and he's seeing something when Jesus has come and the 144,000 have survived. Verses 2 and 3. And here it comes. Here comes the change of direction. And I heard a voice from heaven like the voice of many waters and like the voice of loud thunder. And I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. And they sang, as it were, a new song before the throne, before the four living creatures. We've seen them before, haven't we? And the elders. We've seen those before. And no one could learn that song. I mean, this is a song for one particular group, except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Isn't that great? This voice from heaven speaks. John turns to hear that voice, to see that voice, and he sees these harpists, and he hears the harps, and he knows that there's a song that's going to be given to the 144,000 that nobody else can sing. It has to be a song of victory, a song of triumph. They have been victorious and triumphed over their enemies during the tribulation period. It's got to be a song of rejoicing. Um, 
because they've been redeemed from the earth. By the way, when you know you've been redeemed, it just inevitably, inevitably brings a song to your lips, doesn't it? But this is not a song that just comes from their lips. This is a song that comes from heaven. And this, this song is going to be taught to the 144,000. We're not even told what the song says specifically. We just know that they're going to be singing a song that's unique to them because they were redeemed from the earth. You get that? Verses 4 and 5. These are the ones who were not defiled with women. Now we're going to get a description of the 144,000. These are the ones who were not defiled with women. See? See, ladies? Y'all defile us. I stop that right now. I'm going to get in trouble in a hurry. They were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. They are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Uh, these were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. And in their mouth was found no guile, for they, were, for they are without fault before the throne of God. So John gives you a description of the 144,000. And they weren't defiled by women because they were virgins. doesn't mean defiled ladies like I was making fun a few minutes ago. It just means that they weren't held back by anything. First uh, Corinthians chapter 7, the Apostle Paul recommends being single. You know why he does? He says, because when you're married, you have other things to think about than just the Lord. Well, these 144,000 had only one, one person to think about, and that was the Lord himself, Right? They hadn't defiled themselves with women. They hadn't had a, a heart that was divided. You know, what do I do in this situation? Do I do what the Lord wants me to do or what my wife thinks I should do? They weren't divided in that fashion. So John is conveying here people who have a pure spirit. Uh, they're, pure, they're pure in their body. They're pure in their spirit. Um, he told his disciples that during the tribulation, those with families would have difficulty, Right? Matthew 24, 19, if you've got a family during the tribulation, it's going to be difficult for you. going to be a lot of decisions that are going to be tough to have to be made during that period. He goes on here. Uh, John said that the 144,000 are the ones that follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These men did whatever the Lord said. They surrendered completely to him. They were totally faithful. It said they're the first fruits to God and to the Lamb. You know what first fruits are? They're the evidence that there's more fruit coming. And so their presence there means that there's others that are going to be saved out of the tribulation. Hey, we've got to stop here. Keep your place here. Go with me to 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. What happens to people that hear the message of the gospel today and reject it if Jesus comes Will they be saved during the tribulation? Well, I can show you that it strongly suggests that most of them, if not all of them, won't be. Because they had the opportunity and they turned it down. Notice chapter 2, verse 3 of 2 Thessalonians. Paul writing says, Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first and the man of sin, who's the man of sin? As Satan is revealed, the Antichrist is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God. Isn't that what the Antichrist does? And that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know 
what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work is the mystery of lawlessness already at work in our world absolutely and what restrains it to the degree that it's restrained it's the holy spirit of god but where does the holy spirit live he lives in in the church he lives in us and in the body the collective body and when we're caught out of this world then there's the liberty for the lawlessness to even grow grow worse He goes on, only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. What does he do at the end? He destroys them with the word of his mouth, doesn't he? Verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. We talked about that, didn't we? That's how he'll deceive people. And with all unrighteousness, deception among those who perish because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. They heard the gospel. They had a chance to respond to the gospel, but they didn't respond to the gospel. And for this reason, what reason? Because they heard the gospel and they rejected the gospel. For this reason, God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. What am I saying to you? I'm saying you don't want yourself certainly and not your family to say, well, even if the Lord comes and he leaves me behind, I'll get saved. We don't take that chance. We don't tempt God like that. He says that those who have had an opportunity to be saved, there'll be those who uh, believe the lie and will be condemned. It's, it's a dangerous thing to put off salvation when God's dealing with you. But during the tribulation, though there may be some that won't be saved, that could have been saved before the rapture, there'll be many who are after the rapture who will come to know the truth for the first time to understand the truth the preaching of the 144,000 because the 144,000 are the first fruits of a whole lot more fruit that's coming and then fourth he says here that there's no guile that's found in their mouths wouldn't you like to be able to have that said about you there's no guile that's found in their mouths they're without fault before the throne of God that just means that they've lived blamelessly They've lived in a way that didn't bring dishonor to the Lord. And now they're with him. Mount Zion, the Lord, the Lamb is there. The 144,000 are there. They're given a song that they alone can sing. He goes on, verse 6. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven. Are you all still with me? Okay. Then I saw another angel flying in the midst of heaven, having the everlasting gospel to preach to those who dwell on the earth, to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people. So what have we got? We've got uh, the 144,000 preaching the gospel. We've got the two witnesses preaching the gospel. We've got people who get saved during the tribulation who are likely sharing their faith, preaching the gospel. Now we have an angel that brings the message. This is very unusual. This, message comes to, this angel comes to deliver the message of the gospel to those that dwell on the earth that's the lost during the tribulation. And didn't the Bible tell us that the gospel would go to every tribe, tongue, people, and nation? Uh, we quote that verse sometimes in this day. We quote it from the book of Matthew. 
We say, well, the Lord can't come back until the gospel has reached the, to every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every people. Uh, that's, that's not what that means. That's out of its context. That doesn't get fulfilled until when? Until the tribulation. And so we want to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, right? We're doing everything in our power to get the gospel to the ends of the earth. And I hope and I know that there are many other churches that are doing the same thing. But the fact of the matter is that the gospel doesn't have to get to the ends of the earth before Jesus comes. The, the reality is it won't ever get to every nation, tribe, tongue, and people until Jesus comes. And the 144,000 and the two witnesses and individuals who become believers sharing the gospel, and this angel comes to proclaim the gospel. Notice what he says, verse 7, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment has come and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and, the, and springs of water. You say, that doesn't sound like the gospel that we preach. Well, to understand what he means here, he's describing what is the basic purpose for which God created man in the beginning. He made us for what purpose? To glorify him, right? to fear him, to honor him, to worship him. And can you imagine during the tribulation period, somebody who comes to faith in Jesus, fearing God, worshiping God, honoring God, can you imagine the cost of that? And who would do such a thing unless they were, what, believers? Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. You, you wouldn't jeopardize your life unless you knew that Jesus is the Savior and you believed in Jesus to be your Savior. You wouldn't jeopardize your life in that way for any other reason. You wouldn't understand your purpose except that you trusted in Jesus, that I'm here to fear God and to give glory to God. And so these people are people that have trusted in Jesus. And he's simply describing the character, the conduct of these individuals who believed in Jesus during the tribulation period. Verse 8, and another angel followed, saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city. And we're not going to talk a lot about Babylon tonight. There's a religious Babylon and there's a political Babylon. One's the world power that rules uh, the, you know, the, the governments of earth, and the other is the, the religious power that, that rules over the religious uh, uh, you know, the religious affairs of this earth. We're going to talk about that when we get into chapters 17 and 18. But just notice, the angel followed saying, Babylon is fallen. Is political or religious Babylon, this city of, of great wickedness, is, in this, this religion of great wickedness, is it going to last? No, it isn't. It's fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of wrath, for, of her fornications. Wow. Now remember, he's looking forward. He's looking toward the end of the tribulation. He sees Jesus. He sees the 144,000, a song that they're singing that's a song of victory and triumph. Uh, there's been an angel that's come and has proclaimed the gospel. I don't know how he's going to do that. He won't need CNN or MSNBC or Fox or any of the others because it'll only get polluted through them. He won't need any of them. He'll proclaim the gospel. There'll be people fruit of which the 144,000 are the first fruit, and they'll be the kind of people that you can identify by the character of their lives. And the angel comes and says, this city where you've lived, it's fallen. It's fallen once and for all. Judgment is coming to this city. Verse 9 to 11. Then a third angel followed saying with a loud voice, if anyone worships the beast in his image 
and receives his mark on his forehead or on his, on his hand, he himself shall also drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out full strength into the cup of his indignation. Well, those are strong terms. Do you, do you, can you feel those terms? Can you, can you get that image in your mind? And he, and he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the land uh, of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment ascends forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. Remember that phrase. We're coming back to it in a few minutes. They have no rest day or night who worship the beast in his image and whoever receives the mark of his name. Wow. So one day... Somebody's out and they want to buy, but they don't have the mark. And the only way to buy is to be able to get the mark. And they go get the mark in order to be able to buy. What did they just do? They just sealed their eternal fate. They just sealed their eternal fate. That's what he's telling you. Verses 9 to 11. There is no coming back from that. Verse 12. Here is the patience of the saints. The saints have been patiently enduring. The word patience means to endure, to stay under. Have the, have the saints during the tribulation, those that have gotten saved during the tribulation, have they been under a lot? You better believe they've been under a lot. Here is the patience of the saints. Here are those who keep the commandments of God in the faith of Jesus Christ. Now, these are tribulation saints. But notice verse 13, Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write. Now here's the opposite. Remember the ones that don't rest day or night? Listen to what he says. Then I heard a voice from heaven saying to me, Write, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, that they may. Here's the opposite phrase. Rest from their labors and their works follow them. Now, do you see the opposites? You've got those who take the mark. There is no rest forever in eternity. You got those who didn't take the mark but put their faith in Jesus at the preaching of the 144,000, at the preaching of the two witnesses, at the preaching of the angel, at the witness of other Christians who told them the gospel. They believed in Jesus. They wouldn't take the mark. They wouldn't, they wouldn't receive the mark to buy or sell. He says it would be better for them. It would be good for them if they die because then they'll rest from their labors. Now, I have a funeral sermon that I preach from this passage that I use as secondary application. The primary application is for those that are in the tribulation. If you're in the tribulation, it's okay if you die because you rest from your labors. But our loved ones do the same, don't they, when they die? They rest from their labors? Are you still with me? I mean, there's a stark contrast here between the saved and the lost. And I, I hope you see it. Verse 14. And I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud set one like the Son of Man, having on his head a golden crown and in his hand a sharp sickle. In other words, you're, you're looking at Jesus, the one who wears the crown, who has the authority, and he's about to uh, have the sickle to be put to the harvest. Judgment is about to come. You get that? Verses 15 and 16 are going to be about the next seven judgments that we're going to read about here shortly, not tonight, but in the coming weeks. Verses uh, 17 and 18 are about the battle of Armageddon, which is the last battle that gets fought before the Lord sets up his kingdom on earth. And so now you hear the voice of the Lord saying, uh, go reap. 
put that sickle in and reap. It's time for judgment to come. Mind verse 15? Verses 15 and 16, another angel came out of the temple crying with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud. Did I just read that? By the way, there was an eye cloud long before Apple came along. (laughs) Thrust in your sickle and reap for the, the time has come for you to reap for the harvest of the earth is ripe. It's time, in other words, it's ready. So he who sat on the cloud thrust in his sickle on the earth and the earth was reaped. Judgment has come. Again, you're looking forward. Chronologically, we're still toward the middle of the temple, uh, toward the middle of the tribulation. But by way of a vision, we're now toward the end of the tribulation. We're seeing what comes in these, these coming chapters. Verse 17, then another angel came out of the temple, which is in heaven, he also having a sharp sickle. Verse 18, and another angel came out from the altar who had power over fire, and he cried with a loud cry to him who had the sharp sickle saying, thrust in your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of the vine of the earth for her grapes are fully ripe. Judgment is ready. Everything is prepared. It's uh, the fullness of time has come for Jesus to be born the first time. The fullness of time has come for Jesus to come the second time. God's vengeance is is about to be poured out uh, through the, the sickle, these sickles that are being thrust into the harvest. Um, and then verses 19 and 20. So the angel thrust his sickle into the earth and gathered the vine of the earth, that's life, the vine of the earth, and threw it into the great wine press. Remember what I said about the battle of Armageddon? Into the great wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trampled outside the city, and blood came out of the wine press up to the horses' bridles for 1,600 furlongs. He's talking about the battle of Armageddon. We're going to read about that a little later in Revelation. Really, the battle is more like a war. Um, you know, you think of a battle, you think of a little skirmish. Uh, but this is going to be a major war of those who rise up, the nations that rise up against God, and God's going to put them down by the, 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 the very word of his mouth. You can't defeat God. But he's looking forward. He's standing at the middle of the tribulation. He's getting a vision of what's yet to come. There's going to be a judgment. The sickle's going to be put in, and the harvest, the ripeness is ready. I mean, everything's ripe. It's time. The judgment is ready. And there's a battle that's waiting, the battle of Armageddon. And it says the blood's going to come out of the wine press to the horse's bridle. Now, I don't know. You, you, know, you measure a horse by hands, right? I don't know how many hands that would be. Um, but, you know, that's going to be several feet, four, four and a half feet or more. So the big question is, does that mean that in this valley, this is 175 to 200 mile valley in length, that the blood is going to be that, going to be like a river? Or does it mean in this battle, the blood is going to splatter to the horse's bridle? We're not going to argue that point tonight. I'm not going to even going to get into it. Is it going to be like a river of blood that there's so many people who were killed and the blood is flowing like four, four and a half, five feet deep? Or is it going to be that the death of these is going to be like the, the blood splattering up onto the bridle of the horse? It could be either. It could be whichever one you wish it to be, I suppose. In my estimation, it's more the splatter probably than it is a, a, a river of four, four and a half or five feet deep. 
in a, in a distance of 200 miles. That seems almost impossible to have that much blood, but if God wants to do it, God can do that. I'm not going to disagree when I get there. I, well, I won't be there. <laughs> well, I will be there because I'm coming back with the Lord, but I don't have to battle. I don't have to fight. He takes care of it with the sword of his mouth. And I'll just see the battle. You'll see the battle, and you'll see the great power of our God. Something that I didn't even talk about and I really wanted to talk about was how close heaven was. I'll save that for the next time. Your loved ones aren't as far away from you as you think they are. Heaven is not as far away as we think it is. I have a tendency to think about heaven as being way off, way out, somewhere out there in the black hole, you know? Where you, can, you get, a, you get a, you know, one of those telescopes and you can barely make it out. It's way out there. Revelation chapter 14 and other passages sort of indicate heaven's not nearly as far as we think it is. Your loved ones are a lot closer than you think they are. I love that passage. I'm off, I'm off subject here. What time is it? Uh, I got one minute left. I use every minute. I charge you for every minute. Uh, <clears throat> I, I like that passage in, in Hebrews chapter 12 where it says we're encompassed about by so great a cloud of witnesses. Now, technically, he's talking about all of those saints in chapter 11. That's the great cloud of witnesses. But if, as I'm telling you, heaven is not nearly as far away as we have a tendency to think it is, it's not only those saints in chapter 11. It's the saints of God that aren't nearly as far away that are that encompassing body of people that are cheering us on. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Keep going. It's worth it. It's worth it. The tribulations of this life are not to be compared to the glory that is to come. And so we keep pressing on. We'll talk about how close heaven may be. Wouldn't that be nice to think that way? Uh, my daddy and mother are buried, um, and Mary's daddy and mother are buried uh, 550 miles from us. But they might not be, but just a short distance from us in that glorious place.